Welcome to Clarity Fund Podcast, episode 24. We're continuing on our topic, Rebuilding the Historic Christian Faith. And we're speaking with Dr. Surendra Gangadine. And what we've entered now the Reformation, we've been looking at some of the creeds of the faith. First, we've looked at what is historic Christianity. And we've seen how it's summarized in the creeds of the faith through the work of the Holy Spirit and the pastor teachers as they address challenges. And now we've come down to the Reformation, and we're going to be looking at some of what went on in the Reformation and some of the uh, creeds that were written as we work our way to the Westminster Confession of Faith. So thanks again for being here with us, Dr. Gangadine. I'm glad we could talk about this, Owen. And why don't you uh, tell us where to go here? What are we looking at in the Reformation? Well, um, we spoke about why the Reformation was needed, how there was a departure from the historic Christian faith in terms of a tradition that built, and some of the challenges that went on after the Council of Orange in the 6th, 7th through the 15th century, looked at the attempt to respond to those challenges, especially Aquinas, and how that sacramental teaching was um, promoted certain kinds of, or allowed for certain kinds of practices which required change. And the Reformation was a return to the historic Christian faith. It was a reforming of what took back uh, what was there before. So, yeah, returning to the content of that first council, for example. Um, yes, the Council of Jerusalem. Yeah, it's interesting. I might know, add a note here that in the 15th century, the Council of Constance said, among other things, that councils are the source of unity and are above the Pope. But its other goal was to denounce John Huss and John Wycliffe, who were forerunners to the Reformation, and they were denounced for teaching that the sacraments do not save us. So that's an example of a council which contradicts the earlier councils, and therefore what it says is not true. Yes, and whether the Catholic Church acknowledged that, it seemed it did not, Pope continued to speak as the authoritative, authoritative voice in faith and morals and declaring dogmas that are to be believed because it was pronounced. So and that includes papal infallibility, the doctrine of the Assumption of Mary, and other such matters which further widened the gap between uh, Rome and the Protestant churches. Now, the, we spoke about coming to the Reformation. Now, we'd like to give an overview of what went on during the Reformation. And that involves looking at six councils leading up to, if not councils, creeds, or if not creeds, confessions of faith, leading up to the Westminster Confession, and tried to show how the Westminster Confession of Faith is a summary building on the previous six within the Reformation period, and um, 
how from that challenges remain uh, ushering in the modern world and in the last 70, 80 years about ushering the postmodern world and reaction to the failure of modernity. So we said that the, there's a theme underlying all of these um, councils or creeds of the Reformation and we summed it up in terms of the five solas. Uh, not each and every one, but all together affirming these five solas, sola fides, only by faith we're justified, sola scriptura, and only by Christ, and uh, only by grace, not by works, and, and only for the glory of God. So there's a theme of that unifies all of these creeds in an increasing focus. Now, we'd like to talk about, step by step, how these creeds occurred and where they occurred and how they led up to the Westminster Confession of Faith. Does that seem okay to you, Owen? Yeah, let's do that. I think we'll start naturally with Augsburg uh, Confession. That was uh, written initially in 1530 in response to Charles V calling on the princes of the free state to explain their uh, faith. Uh, there was an attempt to preserve the unity of the realm, especially against the uh, Muslims and the threat of the Turkish invasion. So it was important for Christendom to be united over and against these. So there's a question of church and state from the very beginning. And this was an answer to the emperor, Charles V. And I think it also highlights, and we want to keep this in mind about what is unity, because I think the solution it gives is probably something like this. We can have unity by agreeing on a couple simple, basic doctrines. Yes. And allowing other things to be a matter of uh, personal preference or freedom. Well, there's um, a number of senses in which we can speak about unity. There's the unity of the faith where you maintain um, relationships with others who you believe to be are in the body of Christ. Uh, it's called the unity of the, uh, did I say unity of the faith? I meant the unity of the spirit yeah. in Ephesians 4. Yeah. And then there's the unity of the faith, which is what we're concerned about. That is the work of the Holy Spirit leading, leading the church into all truth. And then there's a functional unity that comes from our being able to work together as members of the body of Christ to achieve the purpose for which he called us. Now, I think there was some other sense of unity, but that's the main point for now. And um, the example of this uh, unity is not a minimal bare one, but a full and rich one, if we're to come into the fullness of Christ. Because our Lord prayed that they might be one, believers might be one, as the Father and the Son are one. And that's not a minimal unity. Yeah. Again. Well, I wonder if that's an approach maybe for the Lutherans 
and then also the Anglicans, that they would say something like having unity in essentials, but not necessarily on the non-essentials. And they may want to add to that, this is a fourth sentence, ecclesiastical unity, where in terms of yeah. church governance and discipline for discipleship, that we are in unity, one church does not disregard the other. And as far as the world is concerned, that we can speak with some kind of um, united voice. And that's what the Lord was getting to in uh, John 17, that they might be one, as you and I are one, that the world might believe. So a lot of, uh, I mentioned ecclesiastical unity because a lot of what went on in the 20th century was trying to aim for an ecclesiastical unity. But unity, ecclesiastical unity, is not the same as the unity of the faith. And that is what we're after in talking about these councils. And what we can refer to as the historical, historically cumulative insight of the Christian faith. The Holy Spirit is leading the church into all truth. And that idea has with it an accumulating process over time as the church responds to challenges. It's a, any departure from that teaching, the historic Christian faith, or as you call it, the, the holy Catholic and apostolic faith. Notice I say faith, not church. But any departure from that holy Catholic and apostolic faith is a division of the body of Christ and it's grounds for a person judging themselves and restraining from partaking of the Lord's Supper. And if they eat and drink unworthily, this can be a cause of judgment on the person who is not discerning the Lord's body. So we should be mindful that it's an important issue, a vital issue, and we're to uh, not depart from the historic Christian faith. So Luther began with the event. Uh, there are things going on in his life before this, but the event of nailing the 95 Theses to the church door in Wittenberg, and that provoked debate. It was 95 Theses against indulgences, which became practice in the Catholic Church which believes in purgatory and penance and doing works that are of salvific value, that is to be saved as against by grace alone. And Luther had entered into that system as an Augustinian monk and worked it as far as he could. One of the things he always concerned about was, have I confessed all my sins? And what happened if I have not? So there's an attempt to introspect with the conclusion that you never can know for sure. All you can say is, this is as far as I know. And then also that you can, after receiving our grace through the sacraments, you can sin in thought, word, or deed, or all three of those, and lose that grace. So he was in torment on the basis of that sacramental system of salvation, of whether he could ever be sure of salvation, which is one of the reasons that drove him into the monastery, that fearful 
storm where he feared for his life and wondered about his future and thought that he should give himself more fully to the salvation of his soul. So Luther came out of that realizing that that system of salvation, sacramental system of penance and works, uh, could not bring about salvation. And through his study in the scriptures, he came to see that what man is called to do before God is repent and believe. Not do penance, uh, but repent. Change your mind of, from unbelief to believing God in relation to sin and to believing in the promise of salvation in Christ and the work of Christ that we're to do. Now, there are varying levels of understanding of repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But Luther understood it sufficiently to make a decisive break with Rome over that point. It is by faith that we're saved and not by works. It's a gift of God, not of uh, works. The salvation is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. So from that break came several other breaks, namely the authority of the Pope, the Magisterium, and the Pope declaring as what is the truth of God, the question about the scripture being the foundation and the subjective factor of conscience in understanding the scripture, not going against that. So he said famously that um, unless I can show by reason and scripture, I cannot go against my conscience, here I stand. That was the spirit that began the Reformation. Uh, salvation is by grace through faith, not of works, and it's based on scripture. That is the authority, not the Pope. And yeah, it's worth noting that in that Diet of Worms speech, he said, Scripture or clear reason. Yes. And what he meant by clear reason is um, subject to Scripture, reasoning from Scripture, not Scripture, not reason apart from Scripture, or judging Scripture, or judging what is Scripture. He had hard words to say against uh, reason as a mistress rather than a handmaiden. But Luther um, made this break and it developed over a period of about um, 17 years. This spread in Germany, caused enough persons to turn away, and that led to the ruler's question about the allegiance of a subject to the Diet of Augsburg in 1530. And what was stated by the princes of the realm in Germany, at least some of the princes of the free states in Germany, replying to the emperor. And that is the first statement of the Reformation, the Augsburg Confession. 
After that came the 39 Articles of the Church of England, uh, first dated in 1536 and extending up into Elizabeth's reign in 1571, when going through several revisions it was completed. They attempted to affirm what Luther was affirming and join with those churches, be in uh, union with them. And a lot of the theology of the 39 Articles were expressed in terms of a personal and practical piety in the Book of Common Prayer. It was um, responding to uh, Calvinism, which was emerging on the continent, and Roman Catholicism. And a significant part of it was done by Cranmer uh, up to the year 1552. It was ratified by Queen Elizabeth I as a kind of middle way between Luther and Lutheranism and Reformed theology of Calvin. But it's Calvinism affirms uh, certain basic truths of Lutheranism and carries it further. The 39 article is midway between Luther and the Reformed churches and has become the teaching of the Anglican Church and the Episcopal Church worldwide. The third um, confession came in 1561, the Belgic Confession, and shortly after that, the Helvetic Confession in 1562, and shortly after that, the Heidelberg Confession in 1563. So three confessions, uh, shortly one after the other. The Belgic Confession comes out of the Netherlands, uh, written by um, uh, Guy de Bray, uh, in response to Prince Philip II of Spain, and it was a plea for tolerance, trying to show that what those in um, his realm affirmed is consistent with the uh, ancient creeds. And that was summed up in 31 articles. And again, the church and state issue is present. And what is affirmed uh, reflects a lot of the thinking of Calvin, Calvin's influence from Switzerland and from France uh, that came to be expressed in the Belgic Confession. So it was national for that area under specific circumstance, again connected with the relation between church and state. Coming shortly after that is the Helvetic Confession, which was more from uh, Switzerland, written largely by Heinrich Bullinger, and consisted of about 30 articles. That was more polemic in nature, not only saying what is affirmed, but what is being denied. In that respect, it was clearer. It was of a more personal sort, saying we believe, we confess, we affirm. It's the one of the um, documents held by the Reformed churches in America. 
the Protestant Reformed Churches of America, among many. So we have this national uh, confession. All of them were in various parts of Europe. There's Augsburg in Germany, 39 Articles in England, the Belgic in the Netherlands, Helvetica in Switzerland, and now in 1563, the Heidelberg Catechism. It's divided into um, several questions and answers, and it exposes, a good part of it exposits the Lord Apostles' Creed, and then the Ten Commandments, and then the Lord's Prayer. That is significant because uh, the exposition of the Ten Commandments and the Lord's Prayer became an integral part of Westminster Confession. But it goes through it in detail, and it's laid out in 52 parts, so that each year they can be preaching on one part of the uh, catechism. Uh, it gives an exposition of the sacraments, as well as the commandments and the prayer. It was done at the request of Frederick III, and the Palin, uh, tenate, uh, uh region of Germany. And um, it was composed by two persons, Persinius and Olivianus. And it was, has a focus, we should point out, in contrast to what is coming, on our only comfort and support in this life. So yes, notable that it starts with that question. What is our our comfort? Our only comfort and support in this life. So it's personal in that way, but it's soteriologically centered. And this is going to there's going to be development from that to what we call the doxological focus of the Westminster Confession. All of it is And I wonder too if it's the personal side of it, it seems to locate the focus in the subjective self. Yes. What is my comfort or our comfort? Yes. The human focus yes. as opposed to it. And this is not to take away from it because it has has uh, valuable things in it. But just to notice that the focus is on the person as opposed to the focus on God, which is coming to in the That's confession. That's a distinction the that confession. we make between the soteriological focus, uh, which has anthropological focus under it, and the doxological focus, which is focused on the glory of God. So yeah. the creeds are becoming, are developing in various parts and successions and with nods of each other and building on it. And it's remarkably coherent in their soteriology and their doctrine of the sacraments and statement of faith over against what we find in Rome. Now, after this, about, um, uh, let's say, about 55 years comes the Synod of Dort in Holland. It was written between 1618 and 1619. And it's interesting the way this came up. It came up as a response to some who had questioned, been questioning the Calvinist doctrine of predestination and the implications of that. And what came out of the Synod of Dort uh, it's this challenge of five points of Jacob Arminius and the Dort's response to those five points and hence the term the five points of Calvinism 
uh, in response to Arminius's view, which had to do with uh, our free will and whether predestination eclipses free will, something of a return back to things considered in the Council of Orange, only now it's being considered in a more pointed, sharper way, and the confession of the Church is becoming sharper in response. So to sum up briefly, um, some may have heard, many may not have heard of the term tulip, or they may just have heard of it and wondered what it signifies, where there's some connection with Dutch uh, botanical gardens to grow tulips. It's uh, T is for total depravity, U for unconditional election, L for limited atonement, I for irresistible grace, and P for the perseverance of the saints. So this becomes very sharply focused in affirming the doctrine of the predestination of God and spelling out uh, the implications. There's still things that will be spelled out, but this goes quite a bit farther than the previous confessions and comes later. And to this now, we, uh, or after this, about 20 years later, or let's say um, 16, about 15 years later, 1643, or more accurately, um, 16 years no, 14 years later, uh, we come to the Westminster Confession of Faith, which was called by the English Parliament in connection with the reimposition of the Catholic faith by Charles, uh, II, Charles I and the resistance that has been going on in England. Remember, going back to the 39 Articles and Henry VIII's break with the... Um, uh, Roman Pope and setting up his own uh, view mixing Lutheran and Reformed as well as um, particular elements of the Catholic faith. But that went farther after Henry VIII and became the 39 Articles. Now, in the context of the 39 Articles, and the political upheaval in England, uh, the Parliament, which replaces the rule of the King, Charles I, calls for a statement of faith by the divines in the realm. And in this assembly, Westminster Assembly, met for about five years, it includes uh, uh, scores of learned uh, theologians and pastors, mostly from the British Isles, uh, England, Scotland, Ireland, Wales, but also some from the continent. So in terms of the um, assemblies uh, or councils, the Westminster seems to be the largest, most widespread representative, and longest meeting. And out of this came the Westminster Confession of Faith and the larger and shorter catechism, which attempts to explain this 
further to uh, the layperson. And just a note here, because next time we'll go into the Westminster Confession yeah. of Faith more uh, clearly, there is a concern with church and state again. In addition to that, there's a concern for the purity of worship. The early Anglicans were in various spectrums as close to Rome as they could get in some farther way. So both uh, church government and purity of worship were some uh, elements that came into even sharper focus. This um, Westminster Confession is held by Presbyterians, or historically held by Presbyterians worldwide. It's been held by Congregationists in the Savoy Declaration, which was written about 10 years later. It's also been held by, in large part, by the Baptists in the Second London Baptist Confession. Um, think of uh, Charles Spurgeon, who represented that strain. But there are a number of points where the Baptist Confession departs from without adequately um, going through the process of arguing against the points from which they departed. But the Westminster Confession of Faith sums up what has gone before, from Augsburg to uh, the 39 Articles, the Belgian Confession, and the Helvetic Confession, and the Heidelberg Catechism, and the Synod of Dort, all of that flows into the Westminster uh, Assembly with a larger representative and a longer process of deliberation so that we could say without uh, much question that the Westminster Confession represents a high watermark of the Reformation, because nothing came after that that added to it, and it's also therefore the high watermark of the historic Christian faith to this day, which is not to say that's as far as we can go because there have been challenges for the last 400 years that are still to be met, and we could give yeah. our attention to that the following time, not the next time, but the following time, what those challenges Yeah, I know are. that we're going to be we're going to be looking at those uh, challenges of modernity. Yes. I wanted to add as well that the high watermark is a good image, but I think also Benjamin Warfield called the Westminster Confession the crown jewel of the Reformation. Interesting. And he also... And particularly because it directs our attention to the glory of God. It takes yes. us our attention off of ourselves yes. and puts it onto the glory of God. And here's where it comes out in the Shorter Catechism. Not what is our only comfort in this life... What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And we'll begin there next time and spell out the implications of that in terms of the doxological focus. It's very rich and very powerful. Yes, thank you okay. for going through the Reformation with us. Thank you, Owen. And this is a Clarity Fund podcast continuing in our series, Rebuilding the Historic Christian Faith. Today we've gone through the confessions and creeds of the Reformation leading up to Westminster, which we'll look at next time as we think about what does it mean to say the Westminster Confession has a doxological focus? Yes. So thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you.